Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we discuss two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings, and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dave Gurney. I'm here with my good friend, Joe Hilliard. And a third good friend. Oh, oh, it's me. It's Roland. Yeah. Good to see you again, Roland. So, so soon. Roland was just quick, on a couple turnarounds. episodes back. Yeah. I think it's about the second movie that we're doing today. We needed to bring in a subject matter expert and Roland might be the guy. Well, he, I, and I think he had kind of thrown out that if we ever did this film, he needed to be on the podcast when we did it. And we do try. Although yeah. then he tried to dissuade us from doing it. So we'll, we'll get into it's that on. after hours. But. It's on. <laughs> you know, are you talking about after hours, our subscriber only bonus episode that you can find at patreon.com slash beer in a movie podcast that's exactly what i'm talking about i Joe. thought so it's a fun time jump on there uh through patreon you're gonna get to hear all kinds of behind the scenes how we plan episodes uh what we've been up to outside of seeing movies i know joe you've been doing a little traveling over the past week i did and brought back some beers Ooh, i think we have a beer in front of us that you might have just brought back we do i went to a craft beer bar in new Braunfels, texas that was of course suggested by our good friend daniel who we talk about all the time but beer was- guru Never appeared on the show, crime. <laughs> and I went to Outroads, spelled like the last name Rhodes, R H O D E S. Okay. And they had beers for sale, singles that you could take away, six packs. And they yeah. also had an amazing array of beers that the only one that would have been on tap that maybe we have even had in our market was the real ale coffee porter. Yeah, definitely have had that. But right. Yeah. But other than that, it was beers that I had never had an opportunity to, to taste before. And I brought back two of them. Even though I had them on tap, I brought them back in cans. Yes. And we've talked a little bit about how sometimes the can and the tap experience can be two different things. Sure. Uh, but this tap experience that I'm about to share with you via can was fantastic. This is a brewer we've never had on the show before. That's always exciting. Yeah. The Burlington Beer Company out of Burlington, Vermont. And this is only our second beer from Vermont. Kind of a crime because it is known as beer a country. mecca for beer. But yeah. they just they don't even need to distribute. That's the thing. There are right. so many people loving that beer in New England. They don't even have to bother with Texas. Well, BBCO, as they shorten their name on the can and on their website, is in New Braunfels. This is their barista. It's a double coffee porter. Barista is a double coffee porter aged on locally roasted coffee beans by our friends at Abracadabra Coffee Company in Woodstock, Vermont. We age this robust porter on more than two pounds of coffee per barrel for an intense character of freshly brewed coffee complemented by malt flavors and aromas of dark chocolate, raisins, caramel, and vanilla. The ABV is 7.3. Ooh-wee! All right. You know... It's gotten cold enough here that I'm starting to dip into the darker beers. I actually had a really good black lager over the weekend. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I was at one of our local watering holes. Nice. And and really enjoyed it. It's it's getting me excited. I have some stouts in the fridge now. But, yeah. You know, so, th- so this uh, double coffee porter is exactly what the doctor ordered. It was a stout and porter weekend, let me tell you that, because yeah. the temperature was perfect for those darker beers. Yeah. We are getting there. Yes. Yes. Even in South Texas. Well, I can't. Oh, I've got to sure, yeah, put notes, your nose yeah. in this thing. It's coffee, coffee, coffee. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Strong coffee. I mean, that's whenever you have the Ooh. coffee infusions, those tend to be pretty bold, uh, at least aromatically. So I'm, I'm not surprised, but it always gets me excited. I know that turns some people off. You're a coffee drinker, yes. Joe. 
I'm a coffee drinker. Roland, do you drink coffee? I dabble. Okay. All right. Because we've had guests in the past who have not been big coffee drinkers, and this will kind of turn them off right at the outset. But uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad that all three of us are at least uh, in that camp that would uh, be inclined to like this. So yeah. exciting stuff. Thank oh, you, I Joe. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I hope I do, too. I interrupted you. I apologize. No, that's okay. Because the beer is just as important as the movies on beer in a movie. But we do have a movie. <laughs> of course. And we do have a movie that we're going to be talking about here in the first half that is a new release, um, one, one that was uh, making waves over the Thanksgiving holiday. We it, talked about the trailer extensively because we both saw it so many times. That's right. It was it was definitely one that was being widely circulated in the fall. Um, of course, we're talking about the latest cinematic rendering of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the the single-name titled film Napoleon, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Vanessa Kirby. I could go into detail about Napoleon's life, and, and maybe we sure. will as we go on, but rather than bore our listeners with, with all those little sort of nitty-gritty details, it's a biopic <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah. of Napoleon, you know, who is one of those sort of historical figures, you know, maybe along with... Uh, you know, Alexander the Great or, uh, you know, who he thought of himself in leagues with or, or uh, you know, perhaps maybe a little bit later, Adolf Hitler and others who are just sort of you don't even need to go into too much detail because people have a sense of them from their history classes and right. in school. You know, th- these are uh, stories that you've sort of heard told to you in various ways. And as I said, this is only the latest cinematic rendering. Napoleon has been depicted on film in films that were focused on that character several times before, maybe most famously Abel Gantz's uh, five plus hour epic of the silent era, which is sort of famous. I don't know. Did, did either of you go to the Alamo to see this? Yeah. The, in the pre-show, they showed a little bit of these sort of different <laughs> representations of Napoleon. And one of them was Gantz's sort of notorious for having three cameras set up yeah. to be able to capture this like panoramic vision uh, of various created widescreen before widescreen right. existed exactly how are we going to do that with the aspect ratio we'll just put three of them side by side yeah he's been treated uh since the silent era in various ways i've heard that movie slaps though it, i've heard it too i've never actually sat through the five and a half hours i've seen clips from it but i've not done the full-on marathon viewing which i need yeah. to someday yeah i'll look at that and say no way but then i just recently watched get back the Beatles so yeah, there goes 10 hours of time maybe or it's going to be a party film at some point <laughs> oh, there you go. a friend of all ours is like are you interested in them doing the three Lord of the Rings films at Alamo coming up soon all in one day and I'm like I guess I'm going to eat breakfast <laughs> and lunch and dinner the there they are, right they are, yeah. oh my god Ugh. it's a 10 hour thing no they do that from time I never get enticed by that I'm sorry it just it's, it's too much I love going to movie after movie but I need a little bit of a break and I can't have it just anyway so well the running time for our Ridley Scott Napoleon was a 157 minutes. Right. Befits a historical epic kind of story, which, you know, again, this is a biopic, but it's also a historical epic. It's about these battles, yeah. these great battles that he fought with Phoenix, who, you know, is one of our most interesting performers, I think. Uh, who finds himself in good projects. Yes. Whenever they need uh, someone to play a weirdo, he comes to the rescue. It, yes, you're, you're right. I mean, he is definitely will. Joker is probably the one that I, I feel like the younger folks know him for best at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah. That That's the one that seemed to resonate the most. I mean, Bo's Afraid just earlier this year was one that uh, we, we discussed at length back on uh, an earlier Have you episode. Have seen The Master? 
Uh, yes. We, did we do that with... Uh, I think we did. Yeah. I, th- I think we paired it with Bo is Afraid oh. because it was a gap there that we had not talked about and, and wanted to do. Unless we did... Yeah, we didn't... No, that's exactly much. what we did okay. back in episode 244. Yeah. I mean, he was in Space Camp. I, mean, I saw him live filming Space Camp. Hello. Is that right? Yeah, it was a Space Camp. But he was credited as Leaf Phoenix at the time, wasn't he? I, I think that was his given name. Yeah. River, Leaf, that family yeah. uh, named their kids nature-wise. Yeah. And then, and then he he started going professionally by Joaquin a That's little right. bit later. Yeah. That's right. Um, so here we have Scott with Phoenix again. Scott uh, and Phoenix, of course, uh, worked on Gladiator together. Not the film we're pairing in the second half. Nope. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you waiting on that one. It covers a good portion of Napoleon's life, kind of picking up from when he was a sergeant, I believe, was his rank uh, at the as the film begins, kind of proving himself on the battlefield in the sort of throes of the French Revolution. And then eventually, as as most of us know, you know, working his way up to leadership role <laughs> as emperor <laughs> of the uh, of the French nation. So, folks, this is the emperor's new groove. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the pairing right there. Yeah. Uh, well, well, guys, I, I've kind of laid out the film here a bit. Yeah. W- w- what were your thoughts going into this? Were you excited for this one? The I, trailer? I kept getting excited. Yeah. I, I- was hoping that I was going to see Ridley Scott doing a big epic with 2023 resources. And I hearkened in After Hours last week to Gladiator. Guys, remember how epic that movie was when you saw it the first time? The battles, the Coliseum Mm -hmm. scenes. And I wasn't disappointed here at all. This is the film that makes me understand the term theater of war. Mm -hmm. Whenever you are a general or a higher up, you're a safe up on the cliff, right. watching down, and that is the... Though he charges with the cavalry at one point, right? Which is one of the historical inaccuracies, as I understand. Okay. Th- there is that scene where he, like, goes into battle with him, but apparently he never did that. But, the, yeah. the battles here take everything else out. There's a love story involved. I'm sure we'll get into there's his ascension to power and dealings with the different governmental agencies of France at the time. Take all that stuff out and just do the battles back to back. This is a rocking movie. I loved the battles in this movie and watching the chess pieces be played from up high where it's safe. Mm -hmm. That was really fascinating to me Mm -hmm. from that first battle. Was it the first battle where the cannonball goes directly into the chest of his horse? Oh, yes. The violence in this movie is very brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And as it would probably be the firing on the crowd. For cannons, yeah. an unarmed crowd, they might have been you know, armed with sticks or yeah. pitchforks or something. But and then into those uh, final bat- battles that where the stakes were even higher and the right. action was even higher. I, I I loved it. The extended scenes of the battle you see in the trailer prominently, where he coaxes the enemy out onto an icy lake and then shoots cannons into the lake to sink them into the ice water and then the pictures from the water up of the bloody bodies falling down so much cinematic loveliness in this film brutal violent loveliness i don't know if you got to catch it in imax but seeing the uh the action in imax was pretty cool i gotta say yeah uh, that's these where are the strength is yeah these are huge scale battles um but also you know that sort of pre-trench warfare, pre, you know, military industrial complex, you know, it's interesting to see if only from that kind of historical standpoint of like, this was what, I I think what always sort of boggles my mind when I'm watching uh, a historical epic depicting battles like this, you know, pre 20th century is 
how do you get all these people? I mean, these people are cannon fodder, right? Like these, yeah. and, and now I've never served in the military, Joe. I don't nope. believe you have. Roll it. I cannot fathom what gets people to feel like they're willing to, to die. Now I know there's causes. I know there's, but you know, a lot of what's, a lot of what is uh, being pushed by Napoleon as, as the film goes on, there's not a lot of, at least, insofar as the film explains there's not a lot of sense of what compels these men the, the you know to go out onto the field and be essentially the you know the you know those people on the front lines are dying i mean there's just there's on no way sides. that first wave yeah there's no way those first waves of soldiers do anything but just end up as bodies on a field and, and over and over again it's discussed by the leadership as the size we're going to put a hundred thousand men against their thirty thousand men we are insured a victory because a hundred thousand can kill thirty thousand and if one kills one then we have seventy thousand left over right and it's it's looking at it as that terms and then watching it in that terms where the person i was watching it with and i were whispering to each other god war is stupid <laughs> Yes, well, that's I, I think that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, senseless and that, ego and yeah. all of it. You know, that said, where you started, Joe, and saying that these scenes were very impressive, they are. I mean, like cinematically, they're shot very well. Oh yeah, the editing is and, really and you know well what? done. The, uh, I thought the uh, the soundtrack for the movie was pretty good too. The, uh, I agree. The, the music they were playing during the battle scenes, yeah. especially in the beginning. Man, yeah, this is this is what movies are about, baby. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and so the the composer here, Martin Phipps, I think I agree. Roland does a great job. I, I think the the film is scored well, and those battle scenes in particular, all very very impressive. I think that's kind of where the best part of the movie ends, though, because well, all the stuff in between is just so. Well, I said boring. take all that stuff out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about that stuff. <laughs> well, there you go, and and that's where I'm. You know, when I go to a film like this. And part of what compelled me in the trailer is I want to understand this figure who seems like larger than life to me. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like he's this historically important figure and all that he was able to accomplish. And again, a lot of it seen very negatively as time goes on, right? That you know, I wish like, the movie had been about him. It wasn't about him. We didn't like really learn anything about him as a character. We just uh, learned, saw people reacting to him and he just sat there staring <laughs> yeah well i agree it wasn't even in a sad way he was just like joaquin i don't know what you i legit don't know what you're thinking dude i don't even get like i didn't even get a strong sense that he was all that ambitious you know what i mean like it's not him who chooses to be king or emperor it's somebody else who suggests it to him right I can't, it was one of his uh you advisors see, you who, see whiffs of him knowing that a increase in his rank is vital right now yeah he does say that a lot mm -hmm. or he'll say it's time for a victory because i need to be more popular right you can see why he was popular if mm -hmm. you consider the navigation of france in europe at the time as it was displayed in the movie and i guess that's the only answer i've got to your earlier well, question of love of france yeah being the reason why i would potentially give my life in you know, a battle where if I'm on the front line, I'm sure to die. Right. But you don't get a strong sense like he really cares all that much about France necessarily either, other than just as the country he happens to be leading and the people he happens to be sort of representing. Had he been born a German, he'd have a different alliance, yeah, no problem. Right. But that, isn't that true of all of us? Well, I, <laughs> I suppose, right? But where I, th where I thought maybe based on the trailer this film was going to be going was getting into that relationship with Josephine, played okay. by Vanessa Kirby, and that maybe that was like, 
whether it was true in history or it was something that Scott or Scarpa, the the screenwriter, David yeah. Scarpa, were putting in there that maybe this strange, somewhat unconventional relationship with Josephine was maybe part of what compelled him to do this. But that didn't ultimately end. I mean, there were some interesting moments depicted in their relationship, or at least the way they chose to depict them in the relationship that I thought were funny. Which, you know, there's some yes. good laughs. The sex scenes are very funny in this film. Yeah. Right? Yes, did yes. you Did you guys agree? Yeah. Sure. There's a, there's a shot that makes it look like he's jerking off. That was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I and, was like, it's just like the master. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, and, you know, he, he's taking her from behind, but just like, I don't know, like weirdly aggressive and like animalistic, but without her really reacting to, you know, just, you know, it, it's interesting. They are introduced to one another when she figures out who he is, they, then he takes her out on a date or something, if I recall. And yeah. and she does the line that she does in the trailer where she says, if you and she hikes her dress up, right, and says, if you look down, you're going to see something that once you see it, it's the only thing you're ever going to want. Right. And then he does a fantastic like slow look yeah, down yeah, without yeah. his neck moving, just his eyes. Yeah. And then he looks back up and then they are together. <laughs> if that was if that was such a prize he doesn't treat it very well in the sensuousness of their relationship right. as you know given also the race for an heir is the only function of his sexuality at one point eventually yeah like. yeah yeah no i i think i was talking with i, I went to go see this with with aaron my, my wife and you know we were talking about like, my wife, my wife. <laughs> sorry the, the way that we compressed time you know what i mean like you, you have to right you're, you're talking about a span of time of at least like 20 30 years right. that's being covered in this film so you can't show every detail and there's like you know years that go by in some of the elliptical edits here and i think what you're saying joe is you get a hint of this sort of sensuality and this sort of more animalistic mm -hmm. you know urge that that is compelling him in, in his love for josephine early on but then it's quickly swept away even though you know there's been years past, right? I mean, even though, because they're looking, you know, why haven't you produced me an heir? Why haven't you produced? And it feels very rushed when I'm sitting there watching it and it's like, well, the scene before is them having sex the first time. <laughs> but in reality, that was years later, right? In reality, that's like, we've been doing this thing for years and nothing is happening. Yeah, really, Scott. Uh, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down. You know better, dude. <laughs> my note is the speed of the love story. Yeah. It doesn't match the emotions that we're are being displayed by them. Yeah. It's almost like Scott was more excited to shoot the war stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think he was. And then you do have to fill in the blanks if you're going to give a larger picture of Napoleon than just his arm, you know, armed forces prowess. Mm -hmm. And I never believe that the love story portion of that thing, which is the entire through time material of the film, mm -hmm. uh, they get divorced because she can't produce an heir. But then she is lovelily set up in a beautiful estate with two million Franks, and that's 1700s francs, by the way. That's a ton of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of people saying, can For, I be Frank? Yeah. <laughs> how, how am I supposed to reply to that? It was so well done. Um, but then he's writing her letter, letters. And, he yeah. would, and then right when the divorce is over, he goes to visit her as if they aren't divorced. Like, you understand I just had to divorce you because I do need to have an heir because of the importance of, of yeah. continuing my emperorship by name. Yeah. Those pieces don't all click together well. Yeah. Even during the battle scenes, which are the best parts of the movie. I feel so lame for saying that, but gosh, it's true. Uh, 
I still didn't feel like any emotion from Napoleon ever. No, I all. agree. I agree. Again, like the motivation. What is it? Like he didn't seem to have a thrill in victory. He didn't seem to. It was a very. He had like Joe would say like, we need a victory now. You know, like it was said, it was expressed, but you didn't get any sense that the guy was invested in it in any way other than just like wrote moving up or, mm-hmm. or keeping his status in the the country. And that status was his prime motivation because once he is exiled the first time, mm-hmm. it, it's not long before he's like, I, I got to get back in the game. Yeah. And when he comes across the water and then kisses the shore, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you do see, you know, he did. He does love, I think, the country that he's in. Right. I also think it goes back to what we talked yeah. about. That's just the country now, he was in. No, I do think him pushing into to to Russia, you know, onto uh, St. Petersburg. Right. That his, his sort of fatal mistake there where he ends up, you know, going too far. Like, I think there is a little bit there. I like that section of the film in terms of like i i do think it captured a little bit of like the kind of hubris that would be involved in that like he's a brilliant uh strategist Mm. he's had such success up until then i mean only success up until then so of course he believes that anything he wants to do he's going to be able to manifest and do and you know essentially plays himself right i mean like he, he has people advising him no this is a foolish thing but he's not willing to listen because he's the smartest guy in the room he never makes mistakes i mean he says that later too mm-hmm. you know, like, the, which kind I, of sounded like a kanye quote <laughs> but maybe that's the biopic that he that joaquin needs to do no he couldn't do that oh that would be awesome he doesn't, he doesn't even have to do blackface just no, wear all the shouldn't. jewelry that, yeah absolutely i feel like i got to know napoleon better in bill and ted than i did this movie <laughs> Well, I did uh, on our uh, Discord, I think, share the meme that's been going around of, you know, somebody complaining like, hey, this new Napoleon film doesn't cover anything about the Battle of San Dimas or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, I don't think any of this historical accuracy is in, you know. So, yes, the 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 uh, the Napoleon depiction in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Or wait, no, that was Excellent Adventure. The yeah, 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 yeah. It's more uh, excellent than right. this one. Yeah. We, we, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I, lo- I love Joaquin but I just don't think he uh, I don't know I think he had anything good to work with and he also makes interesting choices he does not do a French accent yeah and many of the players uh, at the highest levels of government do mm-hmm. and they're probably nationals dude no one it. said French anything in this movie no it was all spoken in English right and they didn't even say French I fries. felt like that was certainly a decision that he'd had to have discussed with Ridley Scott am I doing yeah. a French accent am I not and if yeah. I'm not sometimes that worked example you English think that you're so awesome because you have boats. Yeah, and he says yeah. it in this tantrum-y way, yeah. which worked with the American accent. But yeah. then oftentimes I was distracted by how American his accent was. Well, and it was, you know, that moment you just mentioned, the, him freaking out about, you know, they think they're so great because of the boats. I liked some of those moments. I did like, too. I kind of wish the film had leaned more yes. into. Agree. Even if he's an asshole, let us know more about him. Yeah, and and you know, like contemporize it to the extent that it makes it, it resonates more with what. Oh yeah, he was that kind of guy. He's the kind of guy. He's a brat. Who just get yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. And I think that came through a little bit in some of the Josephine stuff. You know, again, like that first. You know, her whether you call that seduction or entrapment or whatever the heck she was doing there. And then, you know, th- their sex scenes themselves. I think there's like kind of a modern sensibility that comes in. And I think that helps to sort of do that thing that I was talking about, where it's like taking these historical larger than life figures and then sort of remind, well, they're human too. And I mean, like, yes, they achieved some things that are nearly unthinkable in terms of the kind of power and control they had over the people and military and all that. But 
at their core, they were human beings and there was this thing. And so there were those moments in the film where I was like, often the funniest ones where I really started, oh, okay. And I wish it had done more of that. Like, cause it wasn't going for the historical accuracy, right? Like you say, they did yeah. not have him speak in French. They did not have him even speak with a French accent. You know, they had him go into battle in ways that he really didn't in, at least in the historical record. They had him. So they clearly weren't interested in that sort of historical representation being so based in fact to me they should have just leaned even harder into no let's try to do an interpretation of what this is that resonates with a more modern audience and makes them understand what this character might have been like to the people of his time right who would have understood his language his sensibility all that i don't know i would say that all of the elements of filmmaking that are visual are stellar costuming the set pieces the sure a scene that, that where they're melting down metal to make more cannonballs. I just like those little details, and I hope well, that's what that's what really Scott is good at. He's good at making things look good. He uh he made all those commercials. Yeah, you know, he's he's good at that. Yeah, and some of that really works here. Yeah, the nonsense of the French I, was it called the council? The the, the government? The the three or four yeah, guys? Council? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When they are uh, forcibly removed from office in that older couple. I'm eating breakfast. I will not. <laughs> there were little scenes like that that were so exciting. And then I, I would like to point out the beheading of Marie Antoinette, which we get a glimpse of in the trailer, but yeah. it's, it's all we see it all. And I loved that scene. That part was pretty cool. The color palette, you know, which is very different yeah. than a lot of the other movie. I guess it's the before to Napoleon's after perhaps right. uh, her walking through the crowd, the fear that anyone that was looking at that guillotine mm-hmm. as you approach it, and then the slow, methodical putting your head down and the stock over it. And then they're not going to show. Oh, yeah, they're going to show it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I like that part a lot, too. Yeah, really directs the violence really well in this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I thought that was a strong opening uh, it, for the film, even if, again, it was one of the historically inaccurate. He wasn't present. Yeah, he was not beheading, there. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, dramatically, it worked out. And sure. it made me th- actually, you know, a fun, if I like this film more, maybe a fun double feature would be Marianne. Antoinette followed by mm. Napoleon, right? Then you'd have like yeah. kind of the, yeah, but um, sweet and then salty. <laughs> there you go. But maybe I'll do Marie Antoinette with Abel. <laughs> <laughs> I was never bored. Yeah. I, I yeah. just was analyzing all of the time. That could have been different. That could have been. Where's the next battle? Yeah, I don't I don't feel like it dragged necessarily because like you say, the, I think there are enough of those battles throughout the film and even the stuff that didn't work as well. If anything, I mean, I hate to say it because it's not something that I'd actually want, I think, but mm-hmm. it probably needed more running time to be able to develop those relationships and maybe tease out some of what was motivating I don't know if it him. needs a longer running time. It just needs to, like, during its running time, do the job right. Like, get us, <laughs> get us to know these fair, people fair. instead of... Well, it's, it's interesting because there is a longer cut that's going to be coming to Apple, yeah, I think. a four-hour right? cut. Which apparently Scott says is not his cut. Like, th- this is his preferred. <laughs> he likes this cut. He he wants the two-and-a-half-hour version oh, okay. in theaters. And yet, I guess he's consented to Apple, or maybe they didn't give him the yeah, final cut privilege yeah. on what they ran. But, like, they've decided to go with this much longer one. I don't think I'll probably bother to watch it, to be honest. 
but maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll get curious enough to like fast forward through it and see like <laughs> if there's anything added in that makes me feel differently. Probably not, though. That's a good way. Uh, fast forward through all the boring talking bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. More battles? I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But then do you recommend that people see it on the big screen if they're going to see it? I honestly don't. I mean, I, I think if you're... Uh, the big screen is going to help you for the best part. If you love war movies and go. you love seeing battle scenes, yeah. I think, sure. Go for My it. My dad like, would have loved this. Yeah, movie. go see it in IMAX. Yeah. Go enjoy the the big, you know, boisterous and as you said, Roland, great score. You know, like go have that experience with the battle scenes. Don't expect a ton from the dramatic elements of of the relationships of the characters and all that. But you know, go in and, and know what it is. If you're not somebody who loves war movies, if you're not somebody who's compelled by battle scenes. I don't think there's a lot here for you. I would not be encouraging people to go to the theater for this. Yeah, I recommend standing right to the side of the theater and wait for someone to go out the exit. And then you walk in and then you go into Napoleon. And that's the the best way to see it, I think. <laughs> Seeing it without paying for it <laughs> on, the, uh, on the big screen. Roland is advocating that you steal this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but steal it in a theater. Don't steal it at home. It won't be as good as home. No. See, that's my ultimate point is that this film will not be as good on my decently sized television right. and the sound yeah, system yeah, that yeah. I have. But yeah. Yeah. four hours of it. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, oh, but those history buffs are good. But they won't love it. History buffs are going to hate this film. It was already inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the inaccuracies. It's not that. Yeah. I don't I don't think. Are y'all hung up on that at all? I'm not. No, I don't. I really don't but I'm just the, I was thinking the one set of people who might get really excited about watching a four hour version at home would mm-hmm. be people who love the historical uh, recreations. But it's not really a film that does that in a really fidelity, you know, a, a way with a lot of fidelity. So I don't yeah. Know, yeah. I'd rather be compelling than accurate and it is neither <laughs> 157 Ridley. 157 minutes was an okay running time but we're only two of the burlington beer company's barista enough for us mm. i i'm gonna I, I brought it i'm gonna withhold i would like to hear from you guys first <laughs> I like the taste of it. It's pretty good. Yeah, I'm a fan. I mean, like I said, the, the weather has changed here. We're in that cooler time of year. Coffee is always welcome for me anyway, but, mm-hmm. but especially incorporated into a, a you know, a, a beer like this, good body on it. Mm-hmm. Great flavor. Yeah. I, I see no flaws in this one. I yeah. think this is a strong, strong coffee porter. Highly, highly recommended. Never had Burlington Beer Company before. Now I'd really like some more. Yeah. Oh. And it's not available here, so that I'm just bummed out. Well, next time you're up in New Braunfels. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> you're bummed out uh, with, a, with that, just like with the movie. <laughs> I feel like we're just getting started. I mean, I think the film that we've picked to pair is one that there's going to be a lot to say uh, for, yeah. for sure. And one that we've already been warned by our guest, Roland, that uh, it, it may be one of our lengthiest discussions of all time. We'll <laughs> see if that bears out. But uh, but nonetheless, I think there's a lot to chew on with this film. So let's take a little break. And when we get back, we'll jump into an older film from Scott's catalog that is much celebrated. The next film that we're going to discuss, I know we're going to discuss the mise-en-scene, which is very dark, 
one might say black. No? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The blacks are really black in this film. You know, there's only one beer that has an entry in the Five Timers Club, meaning that we've had the beer five times, and that is the black is beautiful. Now, we have had some from Weathered Souls who created this initiative. Right. But we have had five different black is beautiful beers from all kinds of different breweries, Fremont Brewing Company, 903, etc. Yeah. That was, of course, an initiative that we were super excited about back when it happened when Weathered Souls out of San Antonio said, hey, here's the recipe. Right. So 1,601 breweries ended up making a version of Black is Beautiful, and we had five of them. Right. They raised $5 million for that initiative. Now they're back with Black is Beautiful Volume 2. And you're right, David. This year they have picked an organization for these proceeds to go to the National Black Brewers Association because only 1% of breweries in America are black-owned. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I found this in New Braunfels as well. Now, this is the collaboration between Weathered Souls and Dogfish, and rather than it being a stout, the Volume 2 is a IPA. This one's going to be hazy. A hazy IPA. How about that? We know about hazy IPAs on this show. We enjoy hazy IPAs. Um, it looks like this one, at least based on the can that you have here, Joe, it looks like w- one of their close partners uh, in this particular recipe Seems to be Dogfish Head, which yeah. is another brewery that we know well. Yeah, excited for. Oh my gosh, get in there, take a take a sniff. Getting the tropical, get getting the pineapple. Ooh. This smells very very enticing. I don't care if it's cold outside. I'm yeah. still going to want to drink this beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that you enjoy it. This is not one that I had on tap. This is just one that piqued my interest because I hadn't seen it locally. Well, I'm so glad you got it, Joe, because like you said, we, we really did enjoy several of those, the volume one, which we weren't calling volume one, we were right. just calling it Black is Beautiful. But now that they have this volume two out, absolutely, I want to try this. So ho- hopefully we get our hands on another one after this, maybe. But um, nonetheless, I- I'm looking forward to just trying this one as we talk about a really important film in the Ridley Scott filmography. And if you forgot what it was, David, just take a look at uh, Roland's shirt. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love this shirt. Uh, <laughs> I'm introing this one, bitch. <laughs> Bet y'all didn't see that coming. Blade Runner, the neo-noir sci-fi classic first released in 1982, is set in the not-too-distant future of 2019. <laughs> they didn't the get it right. Not-too-distant yeah, future. They, yeah. they, they didn't get it right, but who cares? Oh, well. Yeah, that's okay. Really, Scott's not, not, not known for accuracy, as we've learned. <laughs> where humanoid slaves called replicants are manufactured and forced to live off, off-world colonies where they do slave work. Like watch Ridley Scott's film Napoleon over and over again. <laughs> they become bad when a few replicants go rogue and a special task force called Blade Runners are enlisted not to kill, but to retire. That's right. Harrison Ford plays Deckard, who in true noir fashion is called in for one last job to retire these humanoid creatures. Yes, the four of well them, well I done. think, uh, on the off world, they decided not to do that anymore and killed a bunch of people and came back to Earth. Right? Yeah. So Deckard has to hunt and retire each of them one by one. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned when we talked about doing this movie that if it came out in 82, when I was 10 years old, I must have seen this movie Whatever version was available on VHS at the time, there are seven versions on, according to Wikipedia of this film. Mm-hmm. Many will ask, uh, what, what's the uh, appropriate cut to watch? I think what you have to do is you have to watch all of them, uh, one after the other, and fall asleep to it. 
Only then will you dream of uh, sheep? electric sheep. Yeah. <laughs> as as, a, as, as a, Roland points out, based on Philip K. Dick's novella, yeah. do androids dream right. of electric sheep? Which electric he's, sheep. he saw only like the first 20 minutes of it, but he thought it was the most like accurate representation of his work onto film. That's Yeah, that's right. Dick yeah. Yeah. yeah, he got dicked down. <laughs> so if I if this came out when I was ten, it probably came to VHS when I was eleven or twelve. I must have watched this thing twenty times. Really, whatever version, probably the U.S. theatrical release, which would have gone to to video, right? Yeah, because the U.S. broadcast version, another version of the seven available, didn't come out till eighty six. Mm-hmm. And there's another I, one in ninety two. That's the director's cut. Yeah, I watched it so much that I don't think I've seen it in the longer time than I thought that it had been since i had seen it because watching it now there's so many scenes that i remember but didn't yeah mm-hmm. we'd settle on the final cut i, yes. had, to, I had to get yes. that on amazon Prime. we had to pick one right yeah. that all three of us watched right and we ch- chose the final cut which came out in 2007 Film i will will ask if not now then in after hours what is the difference between that cut that i'd seen a dozen times or more and yeah. this one yeah well mainly the uh, the narration the voice narration over. It's, it, the voiceover is the, is the uh, biggest thing the voiceover in the original yes, yes. it's, it's take, not here it's taken out in the final cut i did i did of course note that yeah you know actually i must confess i've i've never seen the theatrical cut the whole way through right oh really I've it's seen bedtime just, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just in in parts so i don't know if there's a uh, any unicorns in that one i don't think so I think the unicorn figure gets dropped, but I don't think you get the dream sequence yeah. there earlier in the film. Yeah. The insertion of the unicorn came about at the director's cut and then remained in the final cut. Okay. I knew we were going to get bogged down. Yeah. <laughs> this is, as, as Roland said, this is very much couched in film noir as a oh, style, yeah. right? I mean, you, you talked. Joe, in, in terms of trying to connect this to our beer. Didn't do a that, good job. Well, no, this, you know, but this is a very dark film cinematographically, right? This is the term that often gets used to describe noir, chiaroscuro, chiaroscuro, uh, which is, you know, images that are very, they have very dark darks, very dark black areas in the image, but also some light areas that sort of, you know, draw your attention, that draw your eyes. I feel like this movie, like, sort of like, Invented like the cyberpunk thing, cyberpunk look. I and felt, pretty uh, much everybody would agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, Influenced uh, everything like Akira, the, I Dark mean, World, Matrix. You yeah. know, it, it, there are so many films that are indebted to the visual style of this film. Yeah, right. I mean, like sci-fi, which I think he stole some from Joe Dawarski's Dune. Sure, which had <laughs> worked its way into Alien. I yeah. mean, like he, you know, Scott was working in a territory that he had. De- been in just a few years before in a sense at least visually right i mm-hmm. mean you know alien is more outer space here here we're you know on earth dirty post-apocalyptic earth that what, we right. know space is a factor because these people are in these outworlds going to, you, know. you but, know where it started from he uh really scott saw the uh the heavy metal comics and he wanted to make a movie of that that's what like got his interest w- that's what got him to do alien or blade runner blade runner oh, okay I, that's what started his uh, oh interesting Interest in the more sci-fi, I guess. Oh, very cool. But you're taking sci-fi, you're bringing it into this more noir kind of... Everything from the look, right? Like what we were just talking about, the darker cinematography, to the basic story. It's a detective story in a sense, right? I mean, like Deckard is essentially a detective who's out there looking for these uh villain you know the, these criminals the these these rogue replicants that have decided to go off world and sort of deny what their intended purpose was the viewing this time is this story is very simple 
It is. It's rooted in science fiction and complicated ways. Are they replicants? Are they, they, they add those layers, but the story itself is simple as it hell. It is. You need to come out of retirement and hunt down these four replicants. That's it. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a classic story. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yes, you have the somewhat reluctant detective who gets pulled back into this case to try to find these replicants and retire them. Searching, you know, interviewing different people, meeting different people, trying to get the information that he needs to find the next clue that's going to lead him to the... So, so from that standpoint, it's very much a noir. But given the whole replicant concept, right, the idea mm-hmm. of these created beings, you know, mm-hmm. these robots, essentially, that are very human-like. Right. Um, so much so that it's almost impossible to detect. And that, right, and that they're getting better and better at, right? Like, where these are version six, right? Is it what? Yeah, what Nexus six. Nexus six. And then we even get exposed to, because we, we, once we get to the company that creates these, the Terrell uh, Corporation, right. right? Yeah. We have a more advanced version here in the figure of Rachel, played by Sean Young, who's been advanced to a point where they've actually started implanting these human memories, like actual human memories, uh, to be able to sort of create in the replicant itself, you know, in, in this case, Rachel, this sense of having lived a human life and ha- and having had that. So, yeah, I mean, it does, like you say, Joe, it's a simple story in a sense. It's a, t- a detective story of sorts. But it gets really complicated because we bring in this factor of what are what is the nature of these replicants? What is it that if we're creating these things that are here to work for us, but then we're also sort of continually trying to make them more like us and they're taking on. If you're continuing to make them more and more human. Right. This Nexus 6 being the most human ones ever. More human than human. That's our (laughs) motto. When do we get to murder? When do we get to their feelings that they didn't have until you gave them to right, them. Right. Some things we talked about when we discussed Steven Spielberg's AI once well, upon a time. Well, yeah, and where do we get to their their right to free will? Right? Like the, we've created these things but we've made them like us. I mean, this is very much a creation story, right? It's yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, humans Very much so. Rucker Howard's whole thing. I just want to live. I didn't ask to be. Right. But now yeah. I want to live and and because they are so potentially dangerous. The fail safe here is a four year lifespan. Right. Yeah. If one of them goes on a killing spree, it'll end in four years maximum. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. So we were saying how like the story is so simple, the classic uh, noir story, but this one like does an interesting twist on it. It reverses it in a way. I feel okay. How how things play out. I feel like uh, Deckard turns into the villain of the movie, and then Rucker Howard turns into to the hero. You know, complete reverse on it. Well, that's it. so. You know, I think you're right, Roland. I think a lot of the success of this film and and, and what has made it so is in the Roy Batty character, and in particular, mm-hmm. I think Rutger Hauer, his portrayal. I mean, this is. Let's just put it out there. I think this is Rutger Hauer's best film, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like it. I I liked him. I've liked him in some other films over the years. The Hitcher, bro. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> dude. Hobo with a shotgun. Uh, yeah. I mean, there there's <laughs> there are some great films in his filmography, but this is kind of head and shoulders above the rest of them. His performances when he is on screen, you you are riveted. Well, and his final monologue is yeah. is sort of one of those, you know movie scenes for the ages that people will quote from here to the end of time. And it's just, it deserves that. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful, sad scene 
that, you know, it just, it, it's performed expertly. So I think you're right, Roland. Like, I think the trick, one of the tricks of this film and one of the things that's hooked so many of us, because, right, cards on the table, guys, we all love this film. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This watching has made me say, Joe, you idiot, it is time to do 2049. Haven't done it yet. Oh, yeah. I know. And dive a little bit into some of the differences in these versions. Yeah. I, now I'm intrigued. I have done 2049, but I still haven't touched the uh, the series that came out on Netflix oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. a little while ago. There was which, an anime yeah. series. How was it? I liked it so far. I didn't finish it. Okay. I think that's one of the big deals in this is that it, it does this interesting thing where it takes the main antagonist and the more you get to learn about him the more you realize he's not the antagonist in this film and that that the Turrell co corporation and that you know like there are these other forces that are more evil than than anything that he does in this film as the movie goes along you see like the uh the replicants they're way more emotional than deckard is who's just cold the whole movie yeah there's so many other small moments in here i mean everything from from meeting jf sebastian who's this kind of quirky oddball, you know, doesn't fit. He himself has a shorter shelf life, right? He has a disease that it, mm -hmm. it's uh, causing him to age more rapidly than he should. And so he's going to die younger than he should. So he has this kind of affiliation with the replicants in that way. And he's created these small, I mean, I always forget until I see that sequence oh, where, yeah. where you go into his at, apartment at his place. Yeah. And small you have soldiers, dude. Yeah. You have little people <laughs> like who are playing these like replicants that he's created for himself who are just kind of, I mean, there's some, almost like whimsical moments it's so dark though you don't think of it that way but i i get some genuine laughs out of little moments like that when you just see things you know kind of pop out um and william sanderson there playing uh sebastian one of those faces he's, that, like, he's like another version of like tyrell dude yeah he's the person creating his own toys to play with that's right that's you right I, lo I love that about this yeah when we see decker doing the investigative part going down into the city which is so visually striking to begin with but then having interactions with different types of shops and stores and a strip club and that kind of thing the commitment to the look okay mm -hmm. so he goes to meet the replicant who is a strip stripper burlesque dancer yeah doesn't act with snakes with a snake <laughs> yeah the snake is what gets him there i do not understand and help me understand rutger howard's motivation for being there and her motivation for being there her motivation for being there seems to be i'm just gonna blend in yeah <laughs> because i discuss how there are replicants the female replicants in the film maybe not all female replicants have mm -hmm. the same job but they are sex workers yeah you know and that's what they, that other one is a, is a pleasure model pleasure model Pr that's Pr exactly chris is the pleasure model okay right? so yeah. i would assume though that the other female replicant is a pleasure model too given her line of work am i I mean, Zora, yeah. I mean, she can be if you have enough money. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So she, uh, her, her costuming, when she gets out of the shower and she puts on that like shell over yeah. her front and then a clear rain slicker, yeah. which is designed to do two things. Number one, demonstrate the fashion of this 2019 futuristic apocalyptic yeah. LA. Yeah. And number two, create the ability for a great kill scene when Deckard shoots her several times. Yeah. It's all visually motivated, but it's fascinating. Yeah. Little pieces like that. When he goes to order food, when he goes to read a newspaper and just look at the signage on the wall behind him and around him, the flying cars. Yeah. All of that is so well done for the time period. And when those five or so flying cars with their lights yeah. were flying around, I only mm. thought of Close Encounters of the Third Kind at that moment, which oh, I had to think was intentional. 
Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, yeah, I just also want to point out that uh, scene that you were talking about where uh, where he goes to talk to the snake lady. Right. That scene is so funny. He puts on that <laughs> weird accent I haven't for heard no this. reason. I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She already doesn't know who he is. Okay, when we did our every single Indiana Jones film in one episode episode, I said for The Last Crusade, I don't like it when Harrison Ford does funny <laughs> accents, and I didn't like it here either. <laughs> he just makes her suspicious. He was so cool. He didn't have to do that voice. Yeah. That, that I like is- it on The Last Crusade, though. The keratins. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's good for comic. It's, over it, the it's head. good for comedy. It's not That's like. not Indiana Jones. <laughs> what people don't know is Harrison Ford is a secret uh, comedian. <laughs> He's funny on talk show appearances. He, he, has, he has good yeah. comic timing. Yeah. I mean, he was Han Solo. Shrinking was, was great. One of the funniest parts of Star Wars, right? Did you yeah. see the shtick he did with Jimmy Kimmel about Chewbacca have stole, stealing Harrison Ford's wife? Oh, yes, I did. It's actually. so good. Look that up on YouTube. It's so good. Yeah. It's a multi. They do it several times. Yeah, yeah, but but he's not necessarily known for comedy comedy. But uh-huh. but I hear, but I think he brings it in a lot of times. I wouldn't call this a very comic character in general. But not there at are, all. there are that moment, maybe a couple others in there. Yeah, no, it's just the silly mess ups on on a realist. Really smart, I think. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think also another part of the beauty of this film is the ambiguity of some of what's going on, right? We've already made reference to the unicorn and and that's a big fixation for people and thinking about what is this supposed to represent in the film because it's a very conscious choice when it gets included. And it's interesting, especially when you get in, and I'm sure, you know, we all have to some extent read a little bit about it, that, you know, even among those involved in the making of this film, there's disagreements on what the character Deckard is really supposed to be in terms of, you know, there are these small hints that maybe he is not human, right? That he yeah. may be replicant. When when we talk about, you know, the test that gets administered here, the Voigt-Kampf test, right? Which is what the Blade Runners, um, you know, Deckard and, and his ilk use to determine whether or not it actually is a replicant. They have this series of questions they ask. Emotionally and based, on, based. Right. And a lot of it seemed to be based, based around how empathic these people yeah. are, especially towards animals, which are right. a rare commodity in the in that world, right? Uh, animals, right? So you know, th- there's a there's a moment where Rachel, the, the you know the the replicant who doesn't realize she's a replicant until Deckard kind of exposes her as a replicant by using the Voight-Comp test, you know, she asked Deckard, you know, have you ever taken this test yourself? Have you ever done, you know, it's that kind of leaves that question hanging there. The unicorn showing up their gaff, the, who, who isn't really great presence in the film. Edward James almost love seeing him. He doesn't have many lines in the film. He's not, but he's kind of this interesting presence. Who's just always there to pull Deckard back. And, and, you know, kind of like, you know, Bryant needs to see you, right? It, you know, he leaving these little origami animals around. And then in the final one, leaving this unicorn, which, in this later version, the final cut version, um, in the director's cut that we're talking about, it's inserted in there that Deckard has this kind of dream or memory or something, like vision of a horse that he sees when he closes, uh, not a horse, unicorn he sees when he closes his eyes. And so this sense that Gav knows something about his internal psychology that shouldn't be available to him. And the only explanation there perhaps would be, well, he's a replicant. They've implanted that memory. He can That's see. That's exactly can, what the final cut tells you. Right, right. Yeah. So, and that, and the reason why, you know, Scott is the one who wanted Deckard to be replicant, right? And in his rendering of it, he sees Deckard as replicant. But Ford, when he was playing the character, felt that he was human. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you, I mean, it's kind of one of those beautiful things where 
this sort of um, quandary that film fans will have over like, you know, wh- which way do you go? Which way? There's stuff in there, like in the performance that you have to believe Ford was playing it as human as he felt he could or something, you know, in, versus what Scott was doing with the film in terms of editing and putting different images together and stuff that he's trying to get across that, no, this guy is a replicant, actually. So I think that that tension in there is kind of an interesting element of this film that I can't think of too many films that I know of where you have a case of an actor and a, and a director kind of having different visions of the same character and then both kind of coexisting in that same film. It's this- even crazier that this is with Harrison Ford because he doesn't give a shit about any of his other movies. <laughs> this is the only one he's passionate about where he's like, no, Deckard's human. That's interesting. And I was going to say we haven't seen that kind of actor-director struggle in a Scott film since Napoleon. Mm-hmm. That was just a joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fuck no. what, Phoenix saw Napoleon as a uh, replicant, maybe? Mm-hmm. Is that what it? Yeah. Okay. That that explains some of the way Replicants it, can yeah. go back in time. Don't tell me anything. <laughs> <laughs> They're robots. They do it. Yeah. Yeah. I like the I like the imagery of the unicorn, but God damn it, it's so stupid. It doesn't make sense to the, uh, to the story, I yeah. think, to have Decker be a, a replicant. Because then he'd be a really shitty one. Because they all beat him up so easy, and he just sits there and takes it the whole time. And if the police well, force that, knows he's, he's a replicant, why is he immune to the punishment of all replicants being killed, retired, on site? Wait, who's saying that the police captain would know about that? If uh, the buddy if at Gaff Edward James knew, almost knows. Mm, that's a good... But Gaff is mysterious. Gaff, is. Gaff may know more than uh, Brian does. He is. Gaff seems more knowing than Brian. Brian seems a little more... Hand- he's just this a paper pusher. M. M. at Walsh. Um, who I love. Oh, great, yeah. great character, actor, oh, presence. Best like, single line in film history is his line in Raising Arizona. <laughs> no, not that mother scratcher, Bill Parker. <laughs> best line ever. I mean, best line written, best line delivered ever in cinema. Oh, it, hey, the, the Coen brothers will be happy to hear it. <laughs> they don't miss. It's crazy. <laughs> I like that there's this ambiguity kind of cooked into it. I hear what you're saying, Roll. The, the, the unicorn in some ways is a little... Obvious. I love I love the imagery of it. It does yeah. look, look cool, but yeah. uh, I mean, you have to you have to realize, you know where that that footage is from, right? It's it's leftover footage from his Legend. movie Legend. Okay. Is it? I okay. Guessed. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. it's only in later years that Ridley Scott was like, you know what? Maybe he was a rep. Yeah, I could put the I'm unicorn put thing in. in there. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to use that unicorn footage, and Tom Cruise wouldn't let me. Yeah. <laughs> why didn't? Why isn't there any indication of that before? It's because he just got the idea for it. It was added to the director's cut in 1992. That was not in the original theatrical cut. Right. Yeah. So another thing that's notable about this film that I've always loved the score for it. I mean, oh, of course, you know, Vangelis here um, does an amazing job. It's a it's a great sort of soundtrack on its own right. Like it's a it's a great album just to have on in the background and kind of absolutely has a moodiness to it that just kind of. You know, I think fits the film really well. I mean, I can't say enough about the look of the film. I feel like it uh, inspired a bunch of music, too. Just that soundtrack alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sort of brought synth scores yeah. up, up a peg, I think, in yeah. terms of their esteem. You know, the the rain presence mm. in this film, which, you know, again, 
we classic noir but noir it's so good in this movie but it just yeah it, it's pitch perfect and, and there's almost an absurdity to it like does it ever stop raining in los angeles and wait this is los angeles and, but this is post-apocalyptic los yeah. angeles so Where you know coca-cola logos still like a billboard still exists. well that, that is Atari owns everything that's too. beautiful that they actually picked a brand that has stayed somewhat constant yeah. uh it, th- throughout time that uh um uh you know coca-cola is still kind of uh makes sense it's like oh yeah that that could have existed in 20 that's one of the future historical accuracies yeah. of this film but yeah i never was, think about the historical accuracies of it <laughs> but you know there's just so much that it, it really is a case of all of these different elements combining to make something really amazing and sadly in some ways something that didn't resonate with audiences at the time you know what i mean this mm-hmm. film and, and it's kind of the whole franchise at this point was not a success when it first came out. You know, yeah. financially, this was this was a uh, a bomb in, in, a, in a certain way. It's only because it has done so well on home video over the years, and that a cult grew around it that it eventually did get the sequel of of twenty forty nine, which itself didn't do. Yeah, it did well, do I mean, well. did much better than the first film mm-hmm. in terms of ticket sales and, and sort of global box office, but still not enough to really be financially successful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it, yet it gets more because it has this esteem, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blood Runner made 41.6 million on a budget it, of like 20 something. I think, yeah, I, think I mean, you're right. it, it did a little more than its budget, but it, you know, but think about Harrison Ford. Now Hottie was when that thing came out. Absolutely. Yeah. Right yeah. Star Wars. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, but they, but again, like this is, th- it was ahead of its time. Right? This was it a was- year after Raiders, two years after Empire, and one year before Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So Harrison Ford in the science fiction movie seems like such a no-brainer from the director of Alien. Right. Yeah. But but think about the sci-fi of Star Wars, very oh, much God. couched oh, in very like- colorful and clean and toy-driven. Versus the noir sci-fi, which has become- much more dominant, I think, predominant within science fiction ever since. But at the time was sort of a, it made it stand apart. It made it seem, you know, darker, more somber. It is. It's a more melancholy film. It's it's probing things about like human existence and, you know, what it means to be human and how we should treat other living beings and all this sort of stuff that, you know, Star Wars is not yeah, really interesting. <laughs> no one's moms would buy them the Blade Runner strip club playset. <laughs> yeah, I know. I asked for it twice. Have your own replicant snake. And- right. <laughs> yeah. Can I have a pleasure model? <laughs> Life sized. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Who who doesn't want a Joanna Cassidy in their closet? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I I'm so glad we picked it. Yeah. And I do want to watch that uh, original theatrical cut again was there a train do they do they leave on a train my memory say i think they, they, they drive away they like, drive away the, in a car yes so the, the director I thought they the were on a train headed to north them. country but i i there, must have thought you see them leaving back. i thought it was a car but you see them leaving the city they, they they're definitely getting out of the city getting right. into the which you haven't throughout the film the, the entire film takes place in those rain-soaked yeah. streets of los angeles right dirty Bullet. What's funny about uh, the theatrical cut, which you'll notice, is uh, Harrison Ford did not want to did not want to do that. I don't know if you knew about that. The voiceover. Yeah, he thought it was a, a very dumb idea, and purposely, when they recorded it, he was doing very bad takes. It sounds like a studio note. Yeah, yeah, 
Well, he he claims that he was giving it his best, but that <laughs> but that the dialogue was so bad that there was no way to deliver it well. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard him talk shit about the writers, whoever it was. Yeah, he got upset. Yeah, I think it's great that it has grown in reputation the year over the years, like it has, and I do like its influence that it has had on science fiction more generally. Mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of 2049. I don't know if we'll ever do that on the podcast, but, but you know, I guess I've already spilled beans on that one. Maybe with um, Dune 2. Maybe. D- Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, Although we haven't done Lynch's Dune properly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We skipped that for the, I don't even remember what we paired with Dune chapter one. But So bad he didn't even pick it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's okay. But Lynch doesn't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was compromised. So, yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. You know, when, when directors don't get final cut initially, huh? It, it, can, it yeah. can make a difference. Yeah. But you know what? I think really doesn't understand this movie. I think this movie, the final cut, it's a it's a flawed masterpiece. Yeah, I, mean, I think if they just cut out the unicorn stuff, though, that would that would be the the perfect cut. Of me, this I'll movie. answer your question. We paired Dune with Eternals in what must have been a double new. Oh, feature that was a double day. new feature. Yeah, yeah. I remember Chloe Zhao did Eternals. Yeah, and we were excited. yeah. But <laughs> why the existence of the final cut if the director's cut already exists? Roland, do you happen to know that? Why did they even do another one? I guess maybe the director's cut maybe still had the narration in it. I don't think it did. I what was that? Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. I I have the Blu-ray of it, but I haven't seen it yet. Okay, so Scott, even though he helped put together director's cut, he disowned it later, citing that it was roughly edited and lacked a key scene, and that the climax did not feature the score composed for the film by Vangelis. Okay, Wikipedia says it's the only version, only version, the final. Which Ridley Scott had complete artistic. Control. That's right. And it contains the original full length version of the unicorn dream, which Roland has already said. And Ridley Scott clearly just wanted to keep in there. Yeah. <laughs> which had never been in any version and has been restored. Um, and additionally, all of the additional violence and alternative edits from the international cut were inserted. Okay. So there, there were some scenes of greater violence that weren't in the theatrical or final cut or, yeah so uh, when pris cut. gets killed she like completely malfunctions and begins yeah. and that was not here mm. but i remember it was a longer version i think in the theatrical mm. oh we could go on and on or maybe we couldn't we're just with because <laughs> the whole question of the movie is like what is it to be human mm-hmm. and you know there's not really supposed to be an answer so really scott coming up with this bullshit like twilight zone ending about a unicorn doesn't really fit into that like, that's really supposed to have an answer. That's mainly why I say, like, Ridley doesn't understand his own movie. I don't mind it. I don't even feel like it's quite as ironclad as maybe Scott even thinks it is. I, I think <laughs> it's I think it's an interesting little, like, thing to put in there. But it doesn't have to be there either. I, I don't feel like the unicorn is, yeah. like, a strength of the film, necessarily. Yeah. But it doesn't bother me that it's in. I mean, I have this movie on, uh, like... At least once a week at my house. So is that even right? though I complain about it, I'm kidding? still watching oh, hold it. On. Are you kidding? What? You ke- this is one of your like background all the time? Yeah. Huh. Oh. Sometimes I put it on before a show. It calms me down. Wow. I'm going to ask you in after hours, what are the other ones? Okay. <laughs> I got a few. I'm going to ask us all that question. Okay. Well, I'm glad we did it. It was the perfect movie to pair it with, although there was a journey, and we'll get into yeah. that in After Hours yeah. as well. I was so happy that we could crack open another Black is Beautiful, even if it's just because my purchase helps out an organization, which I'm, I think, in league with. Yeah. But the hazy IPA, it's not what I was expecting when I cracked it, o- cracked it, 
cracked it open. <laughs> <laughs> cracked it open because black is beautiful equals a stout in my head. I know. This right? is a little strange pouring an IPA as a black is beautiful beer. Right, a hazy IPA. Uh, I mean, to me, this is a solid hazy IPA. I think Weathered Souls does them well, so I'm not surprised at all by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it drinks really nicely. I think some of those notes that were there in the aroma, the the fruity sort of pineapple-y tropical fruit flavors, those are in there in that hop presence. It's nice and light and easy to throw back. And even though it was what was this seven? Seven. Yeah. Good ABV for an IPA. I, I mean, I'm happy. This is a great beer, and I'm I'm excited to see if I can get my hands on some other Volume Two versions that are floating around. Totally. It would go good with uh, Blade Runner Three. Blade Runner goes on tropical vacation. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> not- <laughs> Everything you said, Dave. I don't need to add more. Except. This is one of the best IPAs we've had in the last three to six months. This is solid and delicious, and I regret that we have drank the two that I brought home. I should have gotten one more. Oh, Joe, yeah, definitely. The snake's up on you. Pretty good. <sighs> this, these are the challenges. I know. As a beer and a movie co-producer with you that we have. We just don't have quite enough beer. Well, mm-hmm. but, but that's the that's, good ones. That's part of the beauty of this journey. Is and roll, that there's always more beer to be had. And Roland's already learned that when I show up to a comedy event and say, hey, these are leftover beer in the movie beers. They're usually not my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because if you liked it on the show, it's you're probably in my those. refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, the, the greatest thing about beer in a movie, though, is that the conversation does not end here. You can find us on all forms of social media. We're there on Facebook. We're there on Instagram. We have our own website, beerinamoviepodcast.com. You can get some nice curated lists of our episodes, as well as a link to our T Public store where you can find various forms of merch. I just got to say the holidays are coming up, folks. Uh, and if you're celebrating uh, eight crazy nights or or even just one day of celebration, you could get some great stuff for your friends and family there. Uh, you can join us on our chat and discord. We're under the name Beer in a Movie. The conversation continues. Just ask us for an invite. We'll be happy to send that to you. And we've also mentioned that we'll extend this conversation ourselves in our Patreon subscriber-only After Hours bonus episode. Please sign up at patreon.com slash Podcast. Also, we know you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, but before you leave, won't you please rate us and leave a review? We hope you'll make it five stars so that the algorithm can do what it do and put us out there as an option for more listeners. You've just experienced another unicorn rific or battle rific episode of Beer in a Movie. Until next time. Beer in a Movie. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Mm-hmm.